welcome um, to uh, Midtown 12 South. My name is Elliot, the pastor here, and uh, Merry Christmas. That was weak, but uh, this is my favorite season of the year. Uh, I love it. I love the sounds. I love the smells. I love the weather. Um, it's maybe second to March Madness week, but this is like my favorite stretch of, of the year. Um, also know, we also know uh, that like seasonal depression is a real thing. Uh, this season kind of kicks up the dust of the dark uh, for a lot of people. Um, and I would just say that's, that's kind of the point. It's kind of intentional in some ways that Yes, there is a great darkness, but a light has shined into the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. That to feel the darkness in this season, to feel the despair, to be reminded in another Christmas season that my life still doesn't look the way I wish it did and I felt that way last Christmas too. Um, all the family stuff it kicks up, all the expectations, like the darkness is part of the season. It's not meant to be avoided or forgotten about. And so that is the place where Advent, where the, the Christmas story is actually meant to speak into um, that light begins in the dark and, um, and Advent begins in the dark. And so if you feel some of that, you don't feel the Christmas cheer like everyone else or you're, you're struggling to get there, uh, I'd actually say you might be in a healthier place. Uh, like that, that, that is part of how we lean into the hope of this season is by feeling the darkness. And so what the church does, and I mean like the church, the global church does historically during this stretch for thousands of years, the church has paused between uh, Thanksgiving and Christmas and between these uh, two holidays um, and this last stretch of these four weeks of the year to remember the Christmas story. But here's why we do it. We don't remember the Christmas story for nostalgia's sake. We don't remember the Christmas story just to be sentimental about it. There's no power in sentimentality, um, but there is power in hope. And so here's why we retell the Christmas story. Uh, if you were with us this fall, we talked about Revelation, the, the, the final book of the Bible. And um, if you're still with us, thank you for sticking it out. Um, but what we, one of the things we looked at as that book came to a close was the promise that King Jesus is returning. And so we have this hope of a promised return of Jesus. And what gets hard is that in real life, it doesn't always feel like he's returning. There's this, oh, you've promised to come, but if I look at the evidence of my life and my world, it doesn't feel like you're coming back. And so the audacity to hope and believe that Jesus is coming back is hard. That's hard to hold on to that hope. So why we remember the story of Christmas is not to get sentimental, it's this. If Jesus came once and we can remember that story and retell that story, it gives us hope to believe he may actually come again. And so the remembering of the Christmas story is not just to remember, it's actually to birth hope in us that we're not crazy to believe that he might actually be coming back. And so what we do in that stretch is we look back at the Christmas story. Matthew has an account, Luke has an account in the, in the Gospels. There's Old Testament prophecies we sometimes look at. But what we're trying to do is to remember the story through these different vantage points to dare to believe that it actually was true, that he came, and that he might actually come again. So that's what we're doing. We're looking at the stories going on surrounding the coming of Jesus. Last week, if you were here, we looked at Micah. In the Old Testament, a prophecy about the coming Messiah. Now we jump to the book of Luke in the New Testament, and we're gonna be looking at um, some stories that were going on around the story of Christmas. So the stories that surround the story of Christmas, the coming of Jesus. This morning we're looking at the story of Zechariah, 
who is the father of John the Baptist, who is the forerunner of Jesus. Um, John the Baptist was to pave the way for the coming Messiah. And uh, John the Baptist's dad was Zechariah. He's the cousin of Jesus, John the Baptist is. This is Zechariah's Jesus' crazy uncle. Okay, we're gonna look at the story of how does Zechariah experience this season leading up to uh, the coming of not only John the Baptist, but the coming of Jesus uh, in Advent. So here we go. We're in Luke chapter one, starting in verse five. This is literally how Luke opens up his gospel account. This is how Luke tells the story of the coming of Jesus. Luke opens up his gospel in the first few verses by saying, I wrote all these stories down. I did all this research to write these stories so that the reader of my book, the reader of the gospel of Luke would have certainty about the things that I'm telling you. And then the very first story that he tells us is about someone who's not so certain that all this could be true. So it's very comforting. So this is Zechariah, the not so certain one uh, that we'll look at. Here we go. Luke chapter one, starting in verse five. So it says, in the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord, but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the, to, to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you do not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service had ended, he went to his home. Verse 24, after these, after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived and for five months she kept herself hidden saying, thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. It's the word of the Lord, amen. So here's what just happened. Zechariah is a priest. Uh, he was in the religious order of things. There was one high priest, one chief priest, and the kind of collections of leaders, but there were tens of thousands of other kind of everyday priests. And those tens of thousands of every, every kind of your run-of-the-mill priest in Israel at the time, they would serve in the temple doing religious duties surrounding temple sacrifices and temple rituals, and they would generally serve twice a year. 
So you and your little group, your little priest group, went to the temple to perform the duties of sacrifice and the burning of incense and the prayers for the people. And you were doing the spiritual duties of a priest, but you only served about twice a year. In your week of serving, in your time of serving, there were, there were lots of you in your little group. And there was a casting of lots, that's what we read here, to decide who gets to do like the important stuff. Like we're all here to pray and do the duties, but there's really only one or two of us that have some actual important duties to do. So they cast lots to do it. Well, this lot falls on Zechariah. It's his turn to do a very important task, to go into the holy place, which is kind of the, the, the next ring in of sacredness inside the temple, and he was to light some incense. And while he lit incense, he would have been praying. Now, this is a big deal because you didn't always get to go in. And maybe some scholars would say, Zechariah, this is the only time in his life he would ever have gotten to go into the temple like this. So it's a big deal. He's feeling the weight of it. I, I've been like kind of waiting my whole life. The lot fell on me. I'm old in age. Now I get to go do this. He's at the altar praying. He's at the altar lighting incense. And what first century Jewish sources would say, rabbinical sources like the Talmud that passed down Jewish tradition would say, during this burning of the incense at the altar, during this time, the priest whose turn it was to go in and do this prayer and do this incense lighting was to fall on their face and begin saying prayers for the nation of Israel. And what they would pray at this time, the prayer that Zechariah is praying is, Lord, would you send your Messiah to us now? We're begging you. It's been 490 years of silence. You have not spoken to a prophet in almost half a millennium. We are desperate for you to come and free your people. So Zechariah is literally praying for the coming of the Messiah. Would you burst into time and space now, O Lord? Would you do it? And while he's doing that, the angel Gabriel appears and he has an announcement. He says to, John, or he says to Zechariah, you're gonna have a son and that son's gonna have an important role. He's going to usher in the coming kingdom and the king of that kingdom. He says at the end of it, he's going to make for, he's gonna make for the Lord a people prepared for the coming of Jesus. Literally, Zechariah is praying for the Messiah to come. And then Gabriel shows up and says, the thing you're praying for, and I know your wife is barren, you're gonna have a son, but not just any son. He's going to be the answer to the very thing you've been praying for right now. I'm answering that prayer in real time. Do you know that every time in scripture that we're told, every time in the Old Testament up till this point and in the New Testament after this point, but every time in scripture that we're told that a woman is barren and unable to have kids, she's about to get pregnant. Like it's, it's, it's like, it's, 100% of the time, if you read of a barren woman, the next thing to happen to her is that she gets pregnant. So Zechariah knows all those stories. He knows that whenever there's a barren woman in God's history and there's a woman that can't get pregnant and an angel shows up, the, the news is always, and it's time to have a son. And it's time to have a, a son that is going to do something great. So Zechariah's told about all this and your son is gonna have some roles to play. He's told some things about John the Baptist, namely he's gonna make ready for the Lord a people prepared. What, get, what Gabriel rattles off to Zechariah in this, in this stretch is he plucks out from Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament, he plucks out from Malachi chapter four a bunch of promises about the preparation right before the Messianic age begins. So he's saying, hey, I'm plucking out all these Old Testament prophecies and I'm directly quoting them to you to let you know your son is gonna be the one to usher in that messianic age. The Messiah is coming and your son is gonna prepare a place, prepare a way for him to come. He says things like this. He's going to turn the hearts of the, of the people of God back to the Lord. He's gonna come in the spirit of Elijah and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, the children of the fathers. Those are all prophecies from Malachi chapter four. 
He plucks them out and says, this is gonna be true about your son because the Messiah is coming. John the Baptist is to be the forerunner of the Messianic age because the king and the kingdom are here. All this happens, okay? Gabriel tells Zechariah this news, the Messiah is coming, the thing you've been praying for. Zechariah has all this history of Old Testament moments of barren, aged women that can't have kids and he knows what comes next. Zechariah doubts every bit of it. You were praying for this to happen, Zechariah. Like, you were asking for the Messiah to come. Gabriel told you the Messiah is gonna come. You know what happens to barren women in God's story when, when an angel shows up. You know this. Verse 18, throw this up there. Verse 18. And Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. In other words, this can't be real. This is really hard to believe, Gabriel. I know what God always does when he sends an angel to a barren family, and I know that I was just praying for the Messiah to come, but this can't happen. How is this gonna happen? Now, his response of doubt, biblically, is not all that uncommon. Essentially, every person in scripture who experiences a barren woman turned pregnant with a, an important baby story Every single person who hears the angel's news in scripture offers some version of a doubtful response back to the angel. Like this, this can't be. This is too much to believe. This can't happen. It's really hard to believe what the angel is telling them. But here's where it gets deeper. There's a textual connection in Zechariah's response, his words back to Gabriel. There, he's like directly quoting the forefather of this storyline, Abraham. Okay? Abraham has a barren wife, Sarah, who's aged. And Abraham's response to the angel when the angel shows up to Abraham and says, you're gonna have a, a baby son. You've been waiting on the, these promises. You're gonna have a son. Abraham's response, Zechariah literally like quotes it verbatim. He's, he quotes the Bible back to angel Gabriel. He's taking Abraham's words and says the exact same thing. Here's what's interesting. When that happens to Abraham, and basically every other doubter in the Old Testament, but with the textual connection to Abraham, we go back to Abraham's story. When the doubting Abraham gives his doubts to the angel, how's this gonna be? I've got a wife that is too old and too aged. Abraham is given a comfort. He's given a reassurance. He's given the Abrahamic covenant, which is like why we're all here. It's like what carries the whole story around. Abraham doubts the angel and he's given a covenant. Let's cut the animals, Abraham. Let's show you how faithful I am. I'm gonna do this, you can trust me. Your comfort, Abraham, is that I always come true on my promises. Let me show you how good I am. Abraham doubts and he's given the comfort of a covenant. He's given the comfort of a sign. But look at what Zechariah's given. He doubts the same way Abraham did. This is what Zechariah's given, verse 19 and 20. I love this too from Gabriel. And the angel answered him, I'm Gabriel. Like, bro, he goes, I stand in the presence of God. Like, do you know where I just was? Like, like less than a nanosecond ago, like I was, in, I was in the throne room and I was sent to speak to you. Like, these are, fr this is hot off the press, dude. Like, he gave this to my ear and now I'm here telling it to you. Verse 20, and behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. Abraham can't believe it, says the same thing Zechariah says thousands of years before, and he's given a covenant to reassure him and comfort him. Zechariah can't believe it, and he's made mute for nine months. Some wives wish their husband during pregnancy was made mute for nine months, but, but 
this doesn't seem fair. Like, wait, 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 how come, how come Zechariah's doubt seemingly gets punished when every other doubter in the Old Testament around this very announcement of a barren woman turned pregnant is given some kind of comfort? And here's what I've come to realize and learn about this passage. Here's what the rest of scripture would say to us to inform how we read this passage and this reality for Zechariah. Zechariah's silence is the comfort. Now it maybe comes in the form of a discipline, but Zechariah is made mute that he might be made whole. And he was given for this nine month stretch the gift of silence. Now, nobody in the room maybe believes that nine months of being made mute is a gift, but let's dive into this. I know we don't like to get truly quiet. I'm not talking about if you're an introvert and you like to be alone, okay? You can be alone and prefer that, but we call that isolation. What I'm talking about is even when you're alone, can you get quiet? Because the quiet is usually where it gets the loudest. I know that if you're a parent of small kids, uh, you say things like, I just want a little peace and quiet. But really what you want is someone not to interrupt you while you can scroll Instagram. Or like while you can go have a glass of wine and watch a show, which is all great. But you don't want true quiet. You wanna stop being interrupted. You want them to stop bothering you. Very few of us want true quiet because the silence can be deafening. That if we're in grief, the silence is usually where I feel the full weight of the loss. If we're, if we're grieving the loss of something near and dear to us, when I get quiet, truly quiet, I feel the absence more. I don't wanna get quiet. It makes the grief too much to bear. Or if we're afraid, the silence is usually where all of my fear fantasies go wild. And so when I get quiet and I'm already afraid, I then have to imagine all the places that I can't control and I can't see around the corner of. And so the quiet makes me actually feel more afraid. If I'm covered in shame, when I get quiet, truly quiet, and I quit scrolling and I quit imagining, when I get truly quiet and I'm covered in shame, the accuser's arrows seem to fly at warlike speed through the quiet. We don't wanna get quiet. We don't wanna get truly quiet for like 10 minutes, much less nine months of it. A study was done recently of 600 college students in Australia. I'm very up to speed on Australian <laughs> research data. Um, found that 99% of Australian college students were diagnosed with something called sedataphobia, the fear of silence those silly Aussies, that's just them, right? Like that we don't, that's not us. Or maybe it's everyone I know could be diagnosed with this reality. What's so scary about silence? It's that silence speaks. Silence speaks a thousand words. And so we do almost anything to not let the silence speak to us. I listen to music an audiobook, a podcast, I'll scroll, I'll binge, I'll work. Like how great of an excuse is it to not get quiet because I have too much work to do? Guys, I'm preaching on the art of solitude and silence. Do you know when it's like, I've got work to do on this sermon and the, the, like, the invitation to go, hey, why don't you go get quiet for a little bit? Don't have time. I gotta go preach about it. Like, I, gotta go, I gotta go work on it. I gotta go work on telling people how to be quiet. Can't do it myself, too much. That would be a giant waste of time to get quiet because I've got so much work to do. 
Don't let it get quiet. We do anything to not feel the quiet. The silence seems to scream at how lonely I am. The silence seems to remind me of how sad I am. The silence seems to reinforce how afraid I am. So we will do anything to not feel the quiet. And in the first steps of trying to get quiet, here's where we feel it the loudest is in those first steps. We can't seem to shut the mouth of our mind off. Like, he was made mute for nine months. He couldn't talk to other people. That doesn't mean that instantly he was in blissful solitude because it's really hard to shut the mouth of our mind off. Paul David Tripp says, be careful how you talk to yourself, the mouth of your mind, because no one has a greater influence on you than you do because no one talks to you more than you do. And so the mouth of our mind is really hard to get quiet. We also love to talk and not stay quiet because we're in an age, in a moment, where we believe um, we need to process everything. We think we can process, verbally process our way into healing and wholeness. And so what I'll do is, is I'll talk to people about it, what I'm going through, and then I need you to reinforce my insanity of what I'm believing right now. And if I talk to you and process with you, but I don't really like the way that I felt after I talked to you about my problems, I'll just go find someone else to talk to about it. And I'll process it and then reprocess it and then maybe put a different spin on it so you can't respond like the last person. And so there can be like hard days where things are going on and I'll find at the end of the day, I've talked to five different people about this issue because I'm just looking for, maybe if I talk to you enough about it, it will quiet my heart about it but that doesn't work either. You cannot process your way into wholeness. We also don't like to get quiet because, if we're honest, um, if I literally can't talk, I can't go talk to you about my judgments of everyone else. I can't go gossip, I can't share my secret hate of other people, I can't, I can't have everyone in my world, if I can't verbally process all my problems with you, then I, I lose the ability to, to let you continue to treat me like a victim if I can't actually victimize myself to you. We love feeling like a victim. There's a lot of power in that. If we get and stay quiet, here's what happens. We can't corroborate our self-righteous judgments of people with anyone. So when I'm judging someone, I need to tell you about what they've done so that I can feel better about my judgment of them because you're gonna confirm, when I, especially the way I paint the picture. You're gonna, you're gonna really judge these people when I tell you what they've done because I've got, I know how to spin it so that they sound terrible. I'm sure no one in here does that. It's just, I, sorry, only Australians do this. Only these, these same 600 kids do the same thing. It's just them. But in time, if I get truly quiet, if we get, truly quiet, I have to become a listener. I can't talk to myself enough, I can't overprocess my life enough, I can't judge other people enough, and if we get quiet enough for long enough and become a listener, here's what the Bible promises, we will hear God speak to us. If you belong to Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit inside of you, who Romans 8 says is always groaning and always, always speaking. If we can't hear him, it's not because he's not speaking. It's because we're not listening. So what happens to Elijah. Like, he's on the Mount Rushmore of prophets in the Old Testament. He's like greatest prophet in the Old Testament. He doesn't even die. He rides a fiery chariot, chariot into, the, into the heavens. There's a moment in, in Elijah's ministry 
First Kings chapter 17 through 19, where uh, he's not doing so good. And uh, he's on the run for his life. A queen has put a, a bounty on his head and he runs, he leaves the country, leaves the ministry, leaves his prophecy, leaves it. He runs out in the wilderness, he gets suicidal. He begs for the Lord to take his life. It'd be better if I was dead. He doesn't wanna do it anymore. He keeps running, goes to the Mount of God, Mount Sinai, Mount Horeb, and he gets there and he's desperate to hear from the Lord. And the Lord shows up with all these supernatural, spectacular displays of natural occurrences. He sends a tornado and an earthquake to the mountain and a fire. And Isaiah, or Elijah is dying to hear, Lord, speak to me through all these things. And it says over and over again, but the Lord was not speaking to him in the tornado. The Lord was not speaking to him in the earthquake. The Lord was not speaking to him in the fire. And then Elijah is finally quiet enough and the Lord speaks to Elijah, says, 1 Kings, all this spectacular display of God and his booming voice sending all this stuff, but he speaks to Elijah in a whisper. Elijah's greatest healing, his restored wholeness comes from God speaking to him in a whisper. Do you know how close you have to be to someone in order to hear their whisper? Do you know how intimate a whisper actually is? Do you know that you can only whisper to someone who literally can't get any closer to you? And then unless you're creepy, you typically only whisper to people you dearly love. <laughs> Is it possible that the rest and the healing and the wholeness that you need is to come from hearing the Lord speak to you in the most intimate of ways. And do you know you cannot hear the whisper of God unless you are silent? You can't hear a whisper if you're surrounded by noise. You certainly can't hear a whisper if you're doing all the talking. And you may be looking for God in the spectacular in the noise and, all, and by the processing, but he may not be speaking to you in those things. He may be trying to get as close to you as he can to speak to you. He may be trying to whisper to you. But if you're gonna hear the whisper, you have to get quiet. But here's what silence can do. Silence can anchor you to the promises of God. Silence can anchor you to the voice of the Lord. And the voice of the Lord, here's what's true about the Holy Spirit in you. If you belong to Jesus, you have his spirit inside of you. The voice of the Lord can get to a place in you that only he can get to. No counselor, and I, I'm pro-counseling, no counselor, no self-discovery. I'm, I'm kind of self-discovery. Pro-counseling, not as much self-discovery. Um, nothing can get to the place in you that only the Lord can speak into. And you don't manufacture that place. You don't earn your way into that place. You don't reason yourself into that place. You listen your way into that place. That's why Zechariah is given this gift of silence. That's why it's a gift. And if you don't believe that this is what Zechariah's silence was, you need to flip to the end of the chapter and read the end of chapter one in Luke. It's the song of Zechariah. 40 verses and nine months later, Zechariah's son, John the Baptist, is born and his tongue is loose and he can speak again. And do you know the first 
thing Zechariah says after his mouth is open, he can talk again. After nine months of being quiet, all he can talk about is how wonderful the Lord is. All he can talk about is how beautiful the Lord is. All he can talk about is how tender the Lord is and how faithful he is and how delightful he is and how wonderful he has been to him and his family. That's all he can talk about. That's all Zechariah wants to say is let me tell you about what I've come to discover or rediscover in this silence. It's clear from the song that Zechariah sings out of the silence just how much he ended up treasuring this silent season. And so it should at least, it should at least encourage us that this thing that gets done in and to Zechariah in this season produces this beauty. He's, he has a deeper experience of the Lord. He's more intimate with the Lord. He understands the Lord in his ways and his faithfulness and, his, and, his, and, his, and the mystery of it. He, he's deeper into it. That happened to him because of the silence, even though he was waiting on, the, on the, the child to be born. It should at least encourage us that the work that the Lord will do to us, that does, he does do to us in the silence and in the waiting is at least as important Maybe not more, but at least as important as the thing we're waiting on. Like we need to get quiet and like, Lord, I just need you to hurry up and do this. Maybe the Lord is trying to quiet you until he's gonna do that thing. And that work and that beauty, what it's meant to produce in you is just as important as the thing you're waiting on. That doesn't mean that while Zechariah was in it or while we're in it, that doesn't mean Zechariah loved every second of it. That doesn't mean that the moment that Angel Gabriel says, you're gonna be mute for nine months, he was like, thank you. I've been looking for a way to take some stuff off my plate. Like he doesn't, he's not like, oh, this is, I, I would have totally picked this. This is what I've wanted. I, I've been needing an excuse and I have to talk to some friends. Like he doesn't, he's not celebrating it every second of every day of silence, which means there are things in your life that you didn't ask for and you don't want there may be hardships that were not your first pick in the fantasy draft of life, but that doesn't mean that the Lord isn't using those things to bring you into a deeper experience of being quiet with him. Like what, what if, what if God is busy coming after you? But what it feels like to you is that the story of your life is not unfolding the way that you want it to. That's what your experience of it is like I'm sure there were days where Zechariah didn't like being quiet. He didn't want this, he didn't pick this, but that didn't, that didn't mean the Lord wasn't using it to produce something beautiful in him. And what if the way that you get to see what the Lord is actually doing in the world and in you is to give you something that you wouldn't pick or didn't ask for? Like that could change how you leave places and moments and interactions that you don't like about your life. You would say, Man, I don't like this. Maybe the Lord is trying to quiet me. Maybe he's trying to actually show me something about himself. Every frustrating reality at your office, every romantic desire that's unfulfilled, every paycheck that you wish were bigger, every co-write that's awkward, every relationship that's challenging, and every addiction you can't kick, all those places. What if those were all the ways the Lord was trying to get you to be quiet with him? Is that possible? That that's what the Lord is doing and then think about this. This kind of blew me away this week in pondering the story, kind of going through the, the timeline of this and the, how Zechariah would have experienced these nine months. Remember what was promised about John the Baptist? 
Angel Gabriel comes and, and like announces to him all these things that are gonna be true about his son. He tells them that your son's gonna be a forerunner of the kingdom. He's gonna be a forerunner of the Messiah. He is making a way, he's preparing a way for the messianic age to begin. The king and his kingdom are coming and your son is, is plowing a trail for that. One of the signposts that Gabriel quotes from Malachi 4 about John the Baptist ushering in the kingdom, look at verse 16 with me. It's one of the signs that the messianic age is, is here and is coming. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. Okay, so that phrasing, turn many of the children, is a phrasing that always means an act when the Lord is coming after his people to restore them to himself. And so one of the signs of the messianic age is that the people of God would experience what it's like to have God restore the intimacy, restore the nearness, restore right relationship, restore them to himself after centuries of not hearing from them. So think about this now. That's one of the signs. You are going to experience your relationship with the Lord. You're gonna be restored to me. You're going to be returned to the heart of the Lord. That's a sign of the kingdom and the kingdom that's here. Who's the first person on earth that gets to experience that reality of the Messianic age beginning? Who gets to see and taste a restored, precious relationship with the God of Israel? First, Zechariah the doubter. Almost as if to say, hey, I know you don't believe this, I know you were just praying for it on your face in the temple and you don't even think that it's happening and you don't think your wife can get pregnant. I'm actually gonna let you be the first one in line to taste the signs of the times so that you believe it even more. I'm gonna actually let you be the one to experience the depths of this new messianic age. I'm gonna let you get to taste it first even though you didn't believe it. Like, do you, do you know how easy it would have been for Gabriel he makes the announcement. Zechariah responds with doubt. Oh, how do, I don't know about this. How, how, my wife's old. How are you going to do this? Do you know how easy it would have been for Gabriel to go, hey, bro, um, I just came from God himself. Um, forget you. Like, we can find someone who will believe. We'll go find someone who, like, we don't have time to waste on, like, convincing you, Zechariah, that, like, this is happening. It would have been so easy for the Lord and his messenger Gabriel to just move on to someone else who wouldn't have responded this way. But he doesn't do that. Because this, this is who the Lord is. Like him doing this for Zechariah is such a display of who the Lord is. He's bringing the Messiah into the world. He's restoring all things that have been lost since the garden. He is reconciling the world to himself. He's doing exactly what he promised he would always do. And he's doing all of this, this messianic age beginning. And the Lord still cares enough about this doubtful man to make sure he experiences the beauty of it too. Amen. Is that Gabriel? That sounded angelic. <laughs> An you need to answer it. You need to answer that call. <laughs> like the fact that the Lord still cares about this doubtful man enough to give him the treasure of a se season of silence to say, actually I'm gonna make you quiet because I love you. 
And in that quiet is when you're actually gonna grow in your intimacy with me. You're gonna hear from me and the song you're gonna produce is gonna be the fruit of how much you've grown in your awe and your, your wonder of, of, of our relationship. I'm gonna give you that gift even though I could have tossed you aside. What if that's true for you? What if the Lord still does this? What if the Lord is always at work saving the world but he's also always at work doing exactly what he says he will do in this passage, turn the hearts of his people back to himself. What if with all that's going on in your world and your family and your chaos and the things you can't control and your doubt, what if in the midst of those things, he's coming after you too? That like whatever's going on, this, this, this hit me about this passage. This story is not about Zechariah. It's not about him. Like the Messiah coming is about the Messiah and the plan of God in the world. It's not about Zechariah, but it is for him. What if like the world's not about you, but what God is doing in the world is for you? It's been said before that God is always doing 10,000 things and you may be aware of three of them. It's true in this passage. He's bringing the Messiah into the world. He's doing 10,000 things in realms that you didn't even know existed. And Zechariah is made aware of a couple of them. Well, one of those three things, one of them, that you can always be guaranteed, the Lord may be doing 10,000 things and you may be aware of three of them. One of those three things that you can always be confident of that the Lord is always doing is he is always using your circumstances to turn your heart back to him, always because this is the kind of God he is. That's what this story is telling you. And you may not believe that until you get really quiet with him. Doesn't does make it any less true. That's what he's always doing. You just may not believe it until you get really, really quiet with him. So we're gonna come to the communion table in just a minute. First, the band is gonna sing kind of a song of reflection. Um, and the song is a familiar Advent song. It's God rest ye merry gentlemen. Uh, but I would encourage you that this song is about the comfort and joy of the reality that the Messiah came to find you. And so as you ponder this song, as we prepare ourselves at the table, would you get quiet with the Lord that you might hear what he has for you this morning. Let's pray. Jesus, Getting quiet is difficult. There's a lot of noise. Our fear speaks, our shame speaks, our past speaks, our future speaks. And so instead of uh, filling the vacuum of the noise, would you, just like Zechariah, Zechariah needed you to quiet him in this passage. Would you, would you quiet us now, Jesus, we pray. We, we can't quiet ourselves, but you can quiet us with your love, Zephaniah 3 says. Quiet us with your love. Make us a quiet people. As we come to your table, make us a quiet and rejoicing people by faith, believing that the Messiah has come and will come again. We ask all this in Jesus' name, amen.